0: All right, all right, all right. It is time for the Kavis Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming
1: up, several interesting developments took place this week, including the Navy's announcement it had settled on an engineering fix for the long-standing problems with the Freedom Class Littoral Combat Ships. We'll talk about some of the things the Navy said about the situation and the future outlooks for the ships. And a noted Naval analyst took a look at Navy carrier aviation's lack of long legs. But first, a quick look at Naval news around the world.
0: An F-35B joint strike fighter belonging to the British Royal Air Force's 617 Squadron crashed at sea November 17th while operating from the aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. The single pilot aboard ejected and was safely recovered. The plane was one of eight British F-35Bs flying from the Queen Elizabeth, where the air group also includes 10 U.S. Marine Corps F-35s. The F-35 that crashed was was one of 24 currently being operated by the United Kingdom. Efforts to recover the aircraft already are underway, with media reports indicating some U.S. Navy equipment based at Rota, Spain may be employed. Queen Elizabeth had just entered the Mediterranean on the home leg of a six-month deployment to the Western Pacific that began in May.
1: Polaris 21, the largest naval exercise ever sponsored by the French Navy, began November 18th in the Western Mediterranean Sea, and will run through December 3rd. Half the French Navy is taking part in the exercise that focuses on high-intensity combat. The French carrier Charles de Gaulle is at the center of one of two opposing groups, which include warships and aircraft from six nations, 24 ships, including U.S. destroyer Porter and British destroyer Dragon, along with 65 aircraft. Other participating nations include Greece, Italy, and Spain. The Russian frigate Admiral Gorshkov conducted another test of the Zircon hypersonic missile on November 17th, destroying a naval target in the White Sea with a direct hit. Russia's defense ministry said, The latest test follows a July firing by the Gorshkov of a Zircon that hit its target at a range of about 220 miles after hitting a speed of Mach 7 nearly 5,400 miles per hour. Range and speed information were not provided in the latest test. It will be at least four years before a U.S. Navy ship deploys with a hypersonic missile. The new Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker Sibir began initial seed trials on November 16th. The 33,000-ton Project 2220 ship is the first of at least two new civilian-operated icebreakers powered by a two-reactor plant intended to allow year-round navigation in the western region of Russia's vast Arctic Ocean coast.
0: And on November 17th, U.S. Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday revealed he had approved a fix for the long-troubled combining gear installed in Freedom Class Littoral Combat Ships. The combining gear is essentially a clutch that combines the power of the LCS's diesel and gas turbine engines. Is notorious for reliability issues and has caused the ships to operate under restricted conditions. Prime contractor Lockheed Martin and its subcontractor, the German firm Renk AG, developed new parts that were installed on the LCS Minneapolis St. Paul, which ran a series of sea trials to prove out the fixes. After reviewing the results, CNO Gilday approved the fixes and the Navy accepted delivery of the Minneapolis St. Paul on November 18th, some 15 months after the ship first ran acceptance trials on lake michigan in a subsequent press briefing on november 18th rear admiral casey Moten, the program executive officer for the naval sea systems command that oversees the lcs program said the minneapolis st paul would remain on the great lakes through the winter before being commissioned in 2022 the fixes will be installed on the five other freedom class lcs's still building at finn countiere marin at marine in wisconsin but decisions on whether the fix would be backfitted on the eight other ships still in service have yet to be made meanwhile the marinette lcs25 is ready for christening and launch at fincantieri on november 20th and that's a that's a quick look at naval news this week
1: so chris let's start our uh, discussion period with uh, the the topic of lcs as we said cno gilday approved Um, the engineering fixes to the Freedom Class LCS ships, uh, clearing the way for those ships to enter unrestricted service. My question to you is, is what are you hearing? Is this indeed um, a real fix that can be duplicated on the rest of the Freedom Class uh, LCSs? Or is this just enough for the Navy to feel good, to be able to accept them, and then let sailors work on a uh, bigger fix uh, in the future?
0: No, I, I think this is a real fix. i've I've heard nothing that tells me it's just a band-aid or something like that. This is the, the, there was a major effort to actually find a solution to this problem. And th- these are bearings in the in the clutch and the combining gear. Um, and one of the vexing problems with this is that it's 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 been intermittent. A lot of these ships, including in Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, did very, very well on C trials, on acceptance trials, no star cards, which is major issues that they have to address. Um, so the, the problem is annoying because it doesn't show up at first. It shows up in service. It's not necessarily the same part. Sometimes It's, it, it, it's the same overall system, but, but it's different parts within the system. And it's been, to say it's been an, um, annoying would be an understatement. It's annoying from for the engineers involved trying to figure out a decent fix. You have this company, Rank AG, which makes the gear. Um, the first two ships in the class, Freedom and uh, Fort Worth, uh, had different, it was a different company that made, them, made the gear. That company went out of business. They, Lockheed Martin, the prime contractor, um, rebid that component, and Rank AG has been making it. Um, the problem, you know, it's one of these things that it, um, it showed up with the Milwaukee LCS-5, the third ship of, of that class, which embarrassingly broke down half a day out of Norfolk. These ships are built at uh, Marinette, Wisconsin, on Lake Michigan, near Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, they have to come all the way through the Great Lakes, through the St. Lawrence Seaway, down the Atlantic Coast, and they're, most of them are based at Mayport in Florida um it's a long way and the problem didn't manifest itself in, in the sea trials didn't manifest itself during the transit um they're half a mile from um norfolk and they, they broke down and had to get towed in so they've actually done a lot of work trying to fix that particular ship which actually is ready to been ready to deploy um to the sixth fleet africom area uh the first time that an lcs is deployed to to that part of the world uh, they were hoping to go last year. Uh, obviously, a lot, a lot of things last year didn't work out the way they did. Um, that ship has been fitted with uh, uh, Hellfire missiles and is, is, uh, is probably the most up to date of the Freedom Class LCSs. That would have been a really big deal. It's been held up by the, the pandemic and other issues include, and related to this. But my understanding is the engineering on that ship is ready to go. But Navy hasn't talked about it because they, it, it hasn't happened yet. They don't want people, you know, when you say we're going and then you don't go, then all the questions are, why didn't you go? But um, the, I don't know if that's going yet. Um, that's another question to ask. Haven't talked to the operational people about this yet. We've talked, talked to the CNO, talked to rare Momotin about it. Um, so more, more to come on that issue. Um, but you know, I mean, you've you've been part of this. You, you were on the inside for a lot of the LCS problems. Uh, been going on for a long, long, long time. Uh, when you were on the on the other side, when you were in uniform, I mean, how, what was what, what was part of the attitude towards LCS when you were in?
1: You you know, you sort of sat uh, where you stood, or stood where you sat, right? If you're in DC, you were always bullish on LCS, and it was one program review or one program fix away from achieving its full potential. Um, And I think, you know, listening to CNO Gilday, I I think that's where he is, at least from a rhetorical standpoint. If you're out in the fleet, it was a little bit different. Um, Had a different training model, the rotational crews, they, uh, you you know, never really settled in. So, and it didn't look and feel like a DDG or an amphib. So um, it never really got accepted. And we've talked about that on on here before. I still, me personally, um, having spent a lot of time in the jobs that I um, had both in uniform and now as uh, a consultant for Fink and Terry in my private life, have spent a lot of time on and around uh, LCSs. I, I am still very bullish on the concept, right? I mean, you, you, know, you just like any new ship class, and not that LCS is a new class, but from a fleet introduction, it's still new. I mean, we're still building them. Uh, I think once you ring out these problems, I'm hopeful that that there's a lot of potential here. And whether it's potential as part of the regular surface force or whether it, you know, fills a boutique or niche role, either in the surface force or for Naval Special Warfare or for the Marine, you know, with the Marines, I, I still feel very good about the concept and about the ability to use these ships in a real way against a near peer competitor and um in building partnership capacity around the world because they are of the size um and nature of a lot of the ships that our friends and allies operate so I, I i hope that this latest fix and the fixes that will come after it you know give this program a jump start that it's been needed for a while
0: i hope so too and i asked um i asked the cno what what, what is ahead for the Freedom Class LCS? Now you sort of have to split that. You know, people like to say LCS, which is two very different ships. The the LCS-2 Independence Class, the aluminum trimorans are built by Austal. Most of those are based at San Diego. Three of them are deployed to the Western Pacific, have been deployed for some months. Um, that's not the same as the Lockheed Martin Fincantieri Freedom Class, which is a single hull ship um so sometimes you sort of have to pin people down about are you talking about all the lcs's or just some of them so there are rumors that persist about uh, strong rumors uh, reports not even, not even rumors reports from people who are privy to some of the budget decisions that are going on right now inside the pentagon that the navy may seek to dispose of all the freedom class ships in the new budget um knowing that there are this class of ship is still under construction they've decommissioned the first of the ships there the second one is about to be decommissioned uh, by march um the others are all based in mayport and are deploying regularly in fourth fleet uh, with the milwaukee ready to go to um to europe africa um and there's six more up at up on the Great Lakes in different stages of construction, including the Minneapolis-St. Paul. So what's the plan, Stan? And uh, you know, the the idea that they would get rid of these things while you're still building them is just perplexing as all get out. And I it's, it's at some point, yeah, there are problems, so fix the problems. Right. They're they're the all sea- it, go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say the CNO's announcement and how he announced it this week
0: yeah.
1: kind of threw me for a loop um, if the Navy is planning on getting rid of these. Right. Um, you know, Putting my uh, retired PAO hat on, um, I mean, I, I, I think the plan was always, um, if you were going to get rid of them, you still would want to build them and fix them and sell them. So a fix would be needed. But the fact that the CNO made the announcement and the way he did it makes me think that maybe they made it through the budget crunch um, and will be around at least for another year. I mean, that's I mean, a hot take. I don't like to give those, but I mean, that, that's what I, yeah. that was my gut instinct um, with how this was announced this
0: week. I'm, I'm just going to read a quick quote from him because I asked him what's the plan ahead for the Freedom Class ships. I didn't say LCS. I said the Freedom Class. And his response was, our intent is to scale use the LCS around the globe I'm sorry, our intent is to scale use, which he means more of uh, the LCS around the globe and to get as much as we can out of that, that platform earlier. I mentioned the value we saw in this Global 14 exercise, this war game that d- just ran up at the Naval War College. He said we're going do- we're going to continue to double down and get as much as we can out of that entire class. I asked him what, what he meant by scale. He said that means increasing the numbers of LCS. That we're deploying not only down to the caribbean in support of u.s southern command but to u.s fifth fleet in the middle east to u.s seventh fleet in the western pacific that's why that's where we're deploying in the western pacific so he says now when i say scale we intend to increase and in, increase the number of those deployments well that's fairly bullish um so if they reverse course when the budget is submitted publicly which is what typically february hopefully it's february unless it gets screwed up and delayed more um and they asked to decommission those ships he just said in the middle of november um we're going to do more with them so this does appear to be the long awaited fix the issue with um you know of course these ships are tied to mission modules which was a great idea and on paper and theoretically sounded very good in practice, it was really, really, really enormously hard. Um, you just can't find all these parts, all these components that meet the various restrictions that the Navy needs to put on these things. So the, the, the three modules everybody knows about is anti-submarine warfare, anti-service warfare, anti-mine warfare. And by and large, the anti-service warfare is the one that's, that's in service. It's the easiest one um the anti-mine warfare is a lot of components they have to develop any submarine warfare essentially my my information is they're putting that off they're they're ending the asw module and putting that off into the frigate they've not made that uh formal announcement yet but the the problems of you know, on on paper, the idea was we have a module, which, you know, so you, maybe you might have a sonar and a missile and a weapon and these two sensors and a, you know, a, a, a fire scout unmanned uh, aerial vehicle, this sort of thing. And you put those components together. The problem is they have to meet great restrictions. So one of the things they wanted to do was put a variable depth sonar on there. That should be pretty easy. There's a lot of variable depth sonars out there, most of them made by, by foreign companies. Um, the problem is that those, the ones that were available that met the performance requirements the Navy had were too big. They were too heavy. They took up too much physical space. Maybe they were too expensive. Um, so, you know, can you get this down into to fit in those restrictions? That turns out to be really hard. And, you know, it's, you just can't, it's like, you want, you want to go to the store and buy all these components that will fit in this particular box. You can find the components. You may not find anything that will fit in that box. That's really where they're stuck with them. But there are other things they can do. I'm, I'm a big proponent of possibilities. And there are too many people that are stuck in boxes as far as I'm concerned, but just look at things and they don't see possibilities. They
1: don't. if, if I was king for a day, I'd put 50 Marines on it um, and, and uh, I would use it in as a precursor to laws or as an experimental platform for further naval integration. Um, I, you, you know, and I think both platforms would be suited for it.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Okay. Anyway, um, I think that's enough for LCS for this week. So let's yeah, talk let- about naval air.
1: Yeah, let, let's shift gears. Uh, Jerry Hendricks, friend of the pod, recent guest, uh, wrote a um, op-ed uh, for the Wall Street Journal. Um, and he talked about the need for longer legs on the carrier air wing. Um, this is a theme that a lot of navalists have been talking about that, um, y- you know, before you get into the the carrier debate on whether or not you need a supercarrier or whether you should have smaller carriers or or whatever, um, you can't get too far into that debate without really talking about the carrier air wing. Um, and, you know, Jerry points out how we went from a Cold War longer distance, both in terms of aircraft length and ability to operate, as well as weapons, uh, you know, standoff weapons, uh, like the Phoenix missile and like uh, paired with the, Tom, uh, the uh, Tomcat uh, to essentially what is an all Hornet um, short legs, uh, heavy dependence on tanking um, air wing. And you know if we are going to use the carriers in an effective way in great power competition, um, we've got to figure a way to increase the, the length and lethality of, of that air wing. Your, your thoughts?
0: Well, what, what did you say about the MQ-25, the Stingray that's being developed now? So I mean, you know, he
1: he and others have said that um, it was a missed opportunity that they should have uh, made it more of a strike and ISR platform. Um, I disagree, and and I, I, you and I have talked about this before. Um, The Navy's argument has always been, "Hey, let's figure out how to operate an unmanned platform off of the carrier." Um, in the simplest way. The tanking mission is really the simplest in terms of, you know, when you think of all the other missions on a carrier, whether it's ISR, whether it's deep penetrating strike, let, let's figure out how to operate an aircraft. Let's figure out how to launch it, how to recover it, um, how to taxi it around the, the flight deck. And then um, once that's figured out, you know, uh, adding a new vehicle that has either greater capability or greater capacity or greater legs um, is, is a much simpler task. Um, as a guy that started his career working on the flight deck as an aircraft and rec- uh, launch and recovery officer, uh, that make I'll buy that. that that makes sense to me. so I, I'm okay with that. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know that that's really. a a huge factor for me right now in the length of legs for the carrier. Um, I think that uh, it's more about the type of aircraft that you put on it. And as the Navy makes its NGAD decisions, you know, is it simply going to be a super, super Hornet or is it going to be closer to a Tomcat uh, with regards to to legs and ability to shoot standoff weapons?
0: Right. NGAD, next generation aerial dominance, uh, which they're in the early stages of right now. Um, I was talking to Admiral um, Lazelle, who's uh, N98 Director of Air Warfare at OPNAV um, just a two, three weeks ago. and we talked a good bit about MQ25. He's pretty bullish on the program. Um, there that's really in terms of the near term, it's not that near. The IOC is really 2025, but there but it may come a little earlier. Um, that's one of the solutions to this is that, the, the Super Hornet, uh, the F-18Es and Fs and the E-18G, uh, the growler that uh, is a derivative of that, have shorter legs than the legacy Hornets, they like to call them now, the ABCs, Ds, that they replaced. Um, that, there were trade-offs with that. And to to restore some of that range, they're now looking to MQ-25. They got They got rid of the tankers they had before. They, you know, standardized the flight deck pretty much with F-18 variants, in the strike fighter role, and the, everything else went away. Um, so they they need to restore that. I think MQ-25 is going to go a long way for that. I'm, I'm the, you know, what is it really for? What are they going to use it for? Has been a, a sort of a game in the Pentagon and in different factions within naval aviation for some time. Um, is it a strike platform? Is it a recon? Is it, is it a tanker? um tanker was the one that they nailed themselves to right now but it's an mq25 m meaning multi-mission if it was just a tanker it'd be a k it'd be KQ. um m indicates an, an attempt to use that platform for other missions they're already planning on using that in a uh, surveillance reconnaissance role uh i don't believe strike is an active effort at the moment but it certainly can come the, the aircraft does have a weapons bay it's being delivered the the, the the tankers will be delivered with a weapons bay it will be able to to uh, to do strike missions but i think in terms of range that's one of the things that they're looking for it has long long the aircraft itself has long legs It can go out hang out be a be a, be a be a gas station orbit orbiting in a certain area uh and tank people coming and going to missions so that that, that that's going to start changing their con ops When it starts to show up actually mq25 the um the first the 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 test article t1 which is not a fully functioning uh, mq25 is actually a modified boeing-owned aircraft but that's already been disassembled and it's being shipped to norfolk and i think before uh, sometime in december uh, it's going to be loaded aboard the george hw bush for the initial deck handling trials just learning to operate this great big Unmanned aircraft in the mix of a manned deck on the in the hangar deck on the flight deck, um, uh, and all and all the issues that come with that. So they'll they'll, they'll start doing that pretty soon. So there, there's kind of hope in this in this you know range area. And of course, it's yeah. I mean, so go on. I, I,
1: no, I'll footstomp though on the NGAD. And, and this is why. I mean, there's a lot of people that would say, well, Jerry just sort of rehashed what what people have already said. But I think in the context of the next generation air dominance, uh, decision making and prioritization, um, I think he and others really want to make it front and center for naval and DOD leadership that um, it needs to, again, look more like a, a Tomcat or some of the Cold War legacy uh, carrier platforms
0: than, um, you know, the Hornet or Super yeah, Hornet. Maybe so. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah, they- now whoops this. Now all right
0: this. i hear you i hear you knock it off all right it's time for a little squawking and i have a little uh, little something to say about uh, what happens when you go to a nice big conference or a symposium and uh, big important people start talking to you so when professionals attend professional conferences they're often attracted to the event by the quality of the speakers who will be there It's not the only attraction, of course, the opportunity to network and catch up with others with similar interests and experiences is very valuable, but many of those in attendance justify the time and expense based on those who will address the conference, but often all too often, those speakers do not deliver anything of quality to their eager audiences. I remember being at an event in the mid-2000s in a room full of military uniforms adorned with multiple combat decorations, listening to speakers revert to bland addresses full of generalities and uncontroversial slogans to kill off 45 minutes of the attendee's time. There was nothing in that address of the slightest use to these military pros. The question and answer session was likewise punctuated by serious questions and dodgy indirect answers that not too deftly sidestepped the question. The condescension and patronization of that address was not unique. I've been to dozens of events where the same thing happens over and over. Audiences are excited at the chance to see and hear a particular speaker and then tasked with sitting politely while that speaker discusses a more than two decades old magazine article, repeats sometime with, sometimes with verbatim, a bland or searingly familiar speech by someone else, or, and this is always a key that if you have anything else to do with your time, now is your chance to leave the room, they start discussing their organizational chart. Another frequent dodge is the I can't speak about that in an unclassified forum line. What a cop-out. Here's the problem with that. The speaker was invited to speak at an unclassified event. The speaker accepted. It is incumbent upon that speaker to find a way to convey a meaningful and substantive message in an unclassified setting. If the speaker is not up to that task or isn't willing to, to, to do it, don't accept. Don't waste everyone's time. Don't mislead people into thinking you might offer something of use. Save it for your classified sessions. Don't bring that excuse. If you can't do better, don't do it at all.
1: Well said, Chris. I I could do another 30 minutes just on that topic (laughs) alone. (laughs) Uh, That does it for this week. As always, our thanks goes out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace team for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello.
0: And I'm Chris Cavis. Thanks for listening, folks. Bye-bye.